Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11. I want to begin by reading the first three verses, and then we're going to pray together. 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition, I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Father, we pray as we look at this word that you will build our hearts up. That you will fill us with a fresh sense of how great you are, Lord. Even in the midst of the brokenness and the disfigurement and the shame that sin imparts we ask it in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. So we read here the Ammonites, led by this guy Nahash, besieged the Jewish city of Jabesh Gilead. The elders of Jabesh know they have no fighting chance against the Ammonites. And so they ask to make a peace treaty, saying, we will serve you. Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. And we just read the cruel counteroffer that Naash comes back to them with. He says, I will make a treaty with you. I will come in and I will gouge out the right eye of every single one of you so that you are disfigured and disgraced. And then you will serve me all your life. And thus I will bring reproach not only on you but of all of Israel and upon the God, Yahweh of Israel. It's a cruel counteroffer. It is ruthless. There is history here. The Ammonites were the descendants of Lot. <clears throat> the Ammonites and the Moabites. And because they were descendants of Lot, when Moses was leading the Israelites through the promised, or through the wilderness, and they were conquering different peoples as they went, God told them, leave the Ammonites alone. Pass through, do not harass them, do not attack them, for they are descendants of Lot. And so Moses passed by them and left them alone. Fast forward many years, we read in the book of Judges, chapter 10 and 11, that the Ammonites see that Israel is weak. They have no leader. And so, being a bit opportunistic, they decide to attack them. And the premise they use for attacking them is that Israel took land from them and they want it back. Jephthah, God raises up a judge named Jephthah. He goes to him, he says, no, 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 here is the land, here's the history. But they refuse to listen and they attack them. Jephthah then leads Israel to a mighty victory against the Ammonites. Well, the Ammonites never got over that defeat, and that 
that uh, bitterness turned into a hatred against the Jews. So now, once again, some years later, they see that Israel is extremely weak. They are fractured. They are disunified. And so they lay siege to the city of Jabesh. And their goal is to leave Israel demoralized and disgraced and to reproach the name of Yahweh. One of the principles that help us understand how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament is that God used physical realities in the Old Testament to display and help give us handles on spiritual realities in the New Testament. So for instance, in the Old Testament, you were blessed by God when you had a lot of money. You had a lot of land. You had a lot of livestock. You had a lot of power. That was God's blessing upon you. We come into the New Testament and God's blessing upon us is we have the riches of Christ poured out upon our souls. But we might be poor. We might be oppressed by people. We might suffer. But the riches of Christ make our souls prosper. In the Old Testament, the enemies of the people of God were nations, were peoples, pagan nations that worship foreign gods, and many of them were incredibly sinful. And so they alternately fought with Israel or tried to lead them astray to worship false idols. In the New Testament, the enemies of God's people are not people at all. They're not flesh and blood. It's rulers and powers and principalities in dark places, in high places. With that said, Nahash gives us a picture of Satan, a type of Satan. And I want to suggest to you that gouging out the eyes of the Jews is a picture of what sin does. The Bible tells us that all of mankind, every man, every woman, every child, was created in the image of God. And that eats away at Satan because as beautiful and powerful as he was when he was created, he was not created in the image of God. So it burns him because he wants to be like God. So he knows he can't remove the image of God from people, but he can disfigure it. He can distort it. He can mar it. And so that's what he does. And the tool he uses is sin. Sin does not remove the image of God from us, but it distorts the image of God in us. Jesus said that the thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So like the treaty that Nahash offers, there is no mercy, there is no compassion, there is no goodness in Satan's agenda for our lives. None. He comes only, Jesus said, he comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He does it through sin. Sin has only one direction. Death. It has one destination, destruction. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What we see here is that there's no making peace with sin. There's no peace treaty we can arrive at with sin. It, sin is deceptive. It is incredibly deceptive. 
Interestingly enough, sin uses the same bait to attract us time and over again, and we fall for it over and over again. But sin might seem attractive at first. It might be pleasurable. It might even be exhilarating for a time. Someone on the brink of an adulterous affair might feel more alive than they have in years. Someone who's escaping their troubles through the bottle or through drugs might feel better. Like this is helping for a time. Someone living for all the world can offer. I want to grab all the gusto I can. I want to get all that the world has to offer. The money, the fun, the pleasure, the recreation, the success, the sex, everything. I want everything the world has to offer. Might feel like they're living large for a time. And we begin to think, maybe sin's not so bad after all. Maybe I can make a treaty with sin, a peace treaty, and come out okay. Sin blinds us in one eye. So we lose our depth perception. We lose the sense of right and wrong. We lose our ability to discern truth from lie. It blinds us just enough that we can see the attractiveness of sin. We can't see the destination of sin. We don't see, or we choose not to see, down the road where sin is taking us. Part of Nahash's purpose, I believe, in gouging out just one eye, was to blind them just enough to allow them to continue to look in the mirror, or to look at their father, or their mother, or their son, or their daughter, or their husband, or their wife, or their brother, or their friend, and see the disfigurement. See the shame. And live with that. The marred image of God in them on display. That's what sin does. That's what sin does. We see the brokenness of sin all around us. Do we not? We see the, the, the brokenness, the distortion, the, the lives that shouldn't be what they are. They should be different. They should be more glorious. But how sin can take people down a, a, a dissension. We see the brokenness of sin all around us, both inside and outside the church. And I want to suggest to you, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg around us. How many happy-looking families hide their shame and their brokenness behind drawn curtains? They don't want anybody to see what's actually going on behind the closed doors. How many young people post smiling selfies, but inwardly they are struggling with powerful emotions that threaten to overcome them? I read recently a significant percentage of young people, young girls in particular, struggle with suicidal thoughts. That is the voice of Satan. He comes only to kill and steal and destroy. Jesus came that we might have life and life more abundantly. But there's another component here that needs to be said and needs to be applied to us in the church. Because Nahash knew that Israel was weak. 
He knew they were fractured. And he knew most of that was their own fault. There's a, I'm not going to get into it, but in Judges, there is an, a tragic story of what the Jews do to Jabesh Gilead. And they're broken within their own place. Their own people are broken. They're, disfra- they're, they're fractured. They, they're they're kind of warring. They kind of dislike each other. There's division. Israel had sinned. They had turned away from God. They were fighting and they were warring within against each other. So Naash knows this is the perfect time to come and basically have my way with them. The church throughout history is a lot like Israel. The history of Israel is they have these good moments where they turn to God and they repent and God does amazing things and then they always fall back into sin, into worshiping idols, into falling away from God and, and, uh, and messing up and then, they, and then oppression comes in. It's not because God says, oh, I'm gonna oppress you. It's because sin leads to oppression. It's, it's gonna lead to oppression. It's gonna lead, sin is a slave master. It's going to lead there. So now they're there. Then they cry out to God. God rescues them. The church's history is not very different from that. Oh, we've had some high points. We've had a lot of low points as well. And sadly, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is self-inflicted. There's also a lot of publication of faults and focus on, as somebody said, planes that land safely never make the news. So it's always the problems that make the news, that get the highlight and everything. But the truth is, a lot of it is self-inflicted. So Satan wants nothing more than to turn people away from the abundant life that Jesus offers to turn them off, to turn them away from the church as the last place to find answers. And our weaknesses kind of reinforce and underline that all too often. A lot of the very people who are confused and hurting and struggling desperately need the abundant life of Jesus that Jesus offers them. Take a look at the church and say, no thanks. They write it off as irrelevant and outdated. Nahash was emboldened by the sad, weak state of Israel. What he didn't know was that God was about to do something new. The Spirit of God was stirring. God was raising up a new king and a new day for Israel. Let's continue reading in verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. 
And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people of, of uh, Gibeah hear what's going on. They start weeping. Weeping is a good thing. It's a good place to start. But that's as far as it would have gotten with them. Saul comes in. This is the new king. He comes in from the field. He's been working out in the field. He comes in. He hears what's going on. And it says the Spirit of God rushed upon him. The Spirit of God rushed upon him and his anger was greatly kindled. The Spirit of God burned in him and anger burned in him. Which, by the way, tells us that anger can be a good thing. Anger can be a good thing. Sinful anger bullies and controls, manipulates to get our own way. Or punishes people because we didn't get our own way. But godly, righteous anger gives us the courage to do the right thing. That's why God gave us anger. And that's exactly what happens with Saul. So this is the same Saul who in the chapter before, he's hiding in the luggage. Like where, where is this guy? Oh, he's hiding in the luggage. And now he's not hiding in the luggage because the Spirit of God has called, has fallen upon him and has changed him into a different man. Just as God said, I'm going to change you into a different man. And now Saul calls Israel to action by cutting up his own oxen. So there's no more returning to oxen for Saul. Cuts them up. He sends them out to Israel. And he says, this is what's going to happen to your oxen if you don't come out and fight with Saul and Samuel. What he's saying is, don't think you can sit this one out and it'll be okay for you. You're going to pay. Don't think, hey, okay, they're going to suffer, but that, how's that affect me? It's going to affect you. We're in this together, Saul says. If you don't help them in their pain, you will feel the pain of loss too. That's what Saul's saying to them. And so the Spirit of God falls upon Israel. They come out as one man and they fight and they win. I want to share just a couple brief closing applications from this story that we read. The first is this. Jesus is the king who came to save his people from our sin and shame. He is the king. Remember in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, God says, here's the purpose for the king. To save his people from the Philistines. From the oppression. When Jesus began his ministry, he began it by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He confronted Satan and he confronted sin by undoing the eye-gouging pain and disgrace that sin had inflicted. He restored sight to the this is what the clash of the kingdom of God and the clash of the kingdom of Satan looked like. He restored sight to the blind. He healed the lame. He straightened the withered hand 
of the cripple and he cleaned the skin of the leper. Jesus expressed love to the unlovely. He called the sinner his friend. He bestowed honor upon the prostitute who washed his feet with oil and dried them with her hair. He extended forgiveness to the woman caught in adultery. And don't we wonder, where was the man? Adultery is a two-person event. Where was the man? But Jesus extended forgiveness and go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. No condemnation to this woman. Adult, uh, he, he extended respectful acceptance to the Samaritan woman whom Jews and Samaritans did not get along. He, he extended acceptance to her, respect to her, to the Samaritan woman at the well. How did Jesus fight the kingdom of Satan? Not by political maneuvering, not by sarcastic social posts, not by being the loudest, angriest voice in the room. He did it by restoring the image of God to broken, disfigured people. People who were externally, but it gives us the more deeper reality that we are all broken on the inside. You might look like you know, a movie star on the outside, but inside we are broken. We are blind spiritually. We are lame and unable to walk uprightly before God. We are crippled and twisted as sin twists our heart and our mind and our thinking. We are unclean by sin. We are deaf to the voice of God. We are disfigured by sin internally, all of us, externally as well at times. Jesus died on the cross to cleanse us from our sin and restore us to deep friendship with God. That we might be adopted as precious sons and daughters of God. He changes our identity. He said to Saul, I'm going to change who you are. He says to us, I'm going to change who you are. I adopt you as my son, as my daughter. Jesus endured the shame so that we might have that shame lifted off our shoulders. Jesus is the king who came to save his people from our sin and our shame. So the question is, who is his people? Anyone who will humble themselves before the king and believe in him. Anyone. Anyone. Jesus is the king who came to save his people from our sin and shame. And my second application point here is Jesus gave us the spirit of God in order to call us and empower us to action. The key moment for Saul here is when the spirit of God rushed upon him. It was the spirit who changed him into a different man. It was the spirit who transformed his fear into courage, his hiding into action. Filled with the spirit of God, Saul called Israel to action. And the spirit of God fell upon them. It's called the dread of the Lord. And it united a once fractured people into an army ready to fight for their brothers and their sisters. Naash saw the weakness of Israel. What he didn't take into account was the power of God. When we see the strength of the enemy's work around us today and the weakness of the church, it can be, it can be discouraging. 
It can make us want to give up. Sometimes I feel a sadness over all the brokenness I see around me. And you probably do too. We probably should feel it more than we do. But it's all around us. Often, don't you feel weak to do anything about that? I know I do. We can want to hide out in the luggage. Yeah, I just want to hide out in the luggage. You know, I just kind of want to ride this thing out. God has called us to more than that. And God isn't weak. And I believe, I do believe, as with Israel, things are coming to a tipping point today. And I believe the Spirit of God is stirring in a fresh way. Now, I want to make it clear that I am not in any way referencing, well, I'm not totally referencing, and I'm not totally discounting the things that are going on in certain college campuses, like in Asbury, what they call the Asbury Revival. I am cautiously optimistic. Because there are things that have happened at the Asbury University that seem encouragingly genuine. It's not focused on hype. It's focused on prayer and worship. If you haven't read about it, you go ahead online and read it. I haven't really been following that closely. But it's focused on prayer and worship. It's, it's college students that just have been praying and worshiping continuously for weeks now. And people are coming from all around. But here's what, I do like this. When some big name Christians offered to come along and try to help them, they told them, you're welcome to come, but you're gonna sit in the back seat. You can sit in the back row. I love that because I'm not, I'm not too uh, excited about big name Christians. Most encouraging is it's been led by Gen Z students, not the faculty. And I hear other college campuses are experiencing the same kind of fires or revival. Um, interestingly, this movie that's out, Jesus Revolution, kind of talks about where what I experienced a tail end, and that is a, a move of God among young people back in the 60s and 70s. This I do believe. We need a fresh sense of revival. I use that word cautiously because people have misused that word, but revival means God making the church alive again. We need that. Amen? We need that. No, no hype, no big name, no big structures, no polished performances. We just need the Spirit of God to move and transform lives in a real way, in a way that affects how we live, how we love, how we serve, what we do, so that we, like Jesus, clash with the kingdom of Satan in the same way he did. And I believe it's going to be led by young people. It's going to be led by young people who stand up in the Spirit of God and lead their own generation to Christ into a fresh season of fruitfulness in life. That people today, here's the goal, experience the abundant life that Jesus alone gives. We need that. So I want to just share two uh, very brief calls to action for us, at least at this moment. Um, simple. Pray. Pray. Church, pray. 
God moves in response to humble, honest prayer. It's prayer that's, that stirs faith in our heart and faith that once again believes that the power of God can do what needs to be done. It's, this is not about you go do this, I go do this. We begin by calling upon God to do this, to open the eyes of the blind, to heal the lame, to, to give ears and hearing to the deaf, to bring cleansing to the leper, to transform that broken life to bring and call the prodigals home to pour love and forgiveness and dignity on the one who's been disfigured and disgraced by sin to restore the image of God where sin has marred and distorted that image and Jesus will do that through an imperfect church because that's all that the church is always and ever imperfect so here's the question who is in your life right now what sphere of relationships do you have? Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that God works in their hearts. Pray that God reveals himself to them. Pray that God draws them to him. Pray for opportunities to share the Lord Jesus with them humbly. Pray. The second call to action is to act. To act. It's what the Lord calls the church to. The sin of selfishness wants us to think as we live in this world full of brokenness their pain has nothing to do with me I'm good I'm good my immediate family's good and that's good enough for me sin works to blind us in one eye so we don't see the pain of other people or the needs of those around us. Paul says when one member suffers, we all suffer with it. God created us for more than just going to church and making it to heaven. I just go to church, hide in the luggage, hide in the back row, and I'm going to make it to heaven. That's my goal. God called us to so much more than that. So again, look at the people in your sphere. Who's in your sphere? And fight for them by loving and caring for them. Be real. You're not going to be perfect, but be real and point them to Jesus. And by the way, and this is a burden on my heart for a reason, I'll share why, but we should start with our own family. But not out of selfishness, but because genuine love always flows from the closest to the furthest. It always flows from the closest to the first to the furthest. I heard just this week about two men that I thought of as solid Christian men, solid ministers of the gospel, but serious sin against their families has come to light. And folks, if it's real, it's going to be real in the home. If it's not real behind the doors of your home, then whatever you have, don't export it. If it's real, it's real in your marriage, it's real in your parenting. 
It's real in how you treat your parents. It's real at home when it's real. So we start with those closest to us. Husbands, love your wives. Pour out your life to build them up and love upon them. Wives, love your husbands. Moms and dads, love your kids. Kids, love and respect your parents. It starts at home. But we don't want to stop there. Because that can be a little selfish if we stop there. We're good. My family's good. Saul, the king, said, we are going to unite together. We're not in any danger. They're in danger. But wow, they're in danger. Their eyes being gouged out. I can't imagine how horrifying that is. We are going to fight for them. And if you don't fight for them, you're going to experience pain. Jesus, our King, wants to use all of us. I mean all of us. I mean, I don't care who you are. He wants to use you to fight for others to be set free from the bondage of sin, from the shame of guilt and condemnation, from the rule of the one who only comes to steal and kill and destroy and to help them know the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. And the way we do that, by acting... Practical acts of compassion, meeting a need, praying for them, humbly sharing Jesus as opportunity arises. And, oh, Spirit of God, use me. We need the Spirit of God to use us, which brings us back to prayer. Let's believe, church, Grace Community Church, let's believe together that God can use us to make a difference, one person at a time, one person at a time. Let's stand together. We're going to close by singing that song because uh, behold him. Because what we need is the Lord. This is not something we can do. I am learning. <clears throat> I am learning. And you think I'd have learned this like decades ago. But I'm learning in a fresh way to lean more on prayer. If you struggle with prayer, if you struggle with motivate, being motivated to prayer, if you feel like prayers are kind of a nicety, but then I got to really do something to make something happen, I relate to that. But I'm learning that the best, the best thing is to lean into God and expect Him to answer prayer, because He does. And so when we can't control it, when we can't do anything about it, but we can pray, that's one of the most powerful places we can be. So let's lean our hearts towards God, praying for Him to do amazing things. Is there someone you're thinking of right now? Somebody that you know who is hurting and you have not had the opportunity or you've shared and it's like hitting a brick wall? I just want to encourage you, get on your knees, pray for them. But make sure your prayer is kind of like that expectant prayer where you're pressing for God to do something. You're, you're, you're not waiting like, okay, God, I hope you do something. You're gazing upon God. You're beholding God. You're saying, God, you are more powerful than anything. 
And I believe you can do anything. And I'm praying for Jim. I'm praying for Don. I'm praying for Sally. I'm praying that, God, you touch their hearts. You change them. You help them. God, would you use me as a weak vessel to encourage them and to point them to Jesus, maybe even lead them to faith in Jesus. Pray expectantly towards that. And let's believe together that God answers those prayers because he does. He truly does. And I believe we're going to see God do awesome things. Let's sing together. Son of 
Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus clashed with the kingdom of Satan. He who died with sinners and saints, healed the blind, the lost and the lame. Even now he is in our midst. Behold him. He who chose a criminal's end. Paid with blood to settle our debt. Very death as he rose to life. Jesus, you said you will build your kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You will build your church. We want to be a part of that army. Not hiding in the luggage, but at the gates of hell, fighting for others fighting for our families, fighting for our church, fighting for our neighbors, fighting for our community, fighting for the world, fighting in the way that Jesus did, healing, compassion, the good news of God restoring us to relationship and forgiveness and the image of God in us restored the power of God, the power of Christ. Lord, we leave here. We ask you to send us. And everyone here has their own spheres. Let no one hide in the luggage. But let us come out. And let us unite. And let us, by the Spirit of God, bring the abundant life Jesus offers to others. We ask it in the name of our beautiful Savior, Jesus. Amen.